we all have to transform faith. Deconstruction is not transformation. It's a takedown. You know, it's stripping faith for parts. When the choice seems to be to tear down the church or build a wall around it, we aim to walk the narrow road of nuance through the wilderness between the warring factions and try to figure out what it means to love God and people well. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Unbetween podcast, to episode 26, to be exact. And this episode is a continuation of our previous episode that we, quite frankly, just couldn't fit into one. So you get two out of it. And, and the episode is focused around our conversation with author, pastor, and musician Josh Porter and his new book that was just released called Death to Deconstruction. So it's a great conversation. We think you'll enjoy it as much as we did. And yeah, that's all I got to say. We'll talk to you on the other side of the podcast, the other side of the podcast. Whew. That's good. Did you write that? In, yeah. Did you put that in the book? I I don't know if it's in the book, but it, it feels like something I've said a lot at this point. So. <laughs> Ooh, that's, that's good. <laughs> Ryan, don't let me talk over you the whole time. No, you're good. I, I'm I'm enjoying the conversation. I mean, it's funny just how much even resonates with me with just coming to a different point in my faith to realize I'd, I'd been told all this stuff and was maybe fine with it for a while. But then when you actually read the Bible with an understanding, I mean, that that's just a whole different a different thing. So hearing it and just seeing how different people approach it differently is interesting to me. Like what makes yeah. some people see something, read something, hear something they doubt and try to throw it all out versus someone like you who, you know, goes through it and, and learns and, you know, seeks something more. Um, I think, yeah. I, I know. You know, that's the important thing is that I think that sometimes deconstruction as a fad lacks the integrity to just say, I don't want to do it anymore. I don't, hmm. mm-hmm. I don't want to deny myself. And because it feels as if it's like a admitting failure, it's admitting like, you know, it's the whole, you know, uh, it's not that the video game is too hard. It's just, uh, my controller sucks, you know, <laughs> right. because people who talk about deconstruction almost, at least in my personal experience, um, they talk about it as if it's something that's happening to them and they are the hmm. passive party. They say like, uh, and they're helpless against this thing that's happening to them. So they'll say things like, I just couldn't do it, you know, or I just couldn't reconcile. And it's like, well, you know, no, that can't possibly be true because there's innumerable people all over the world that right. continue to walk in faith and have for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. What you mean is that you, you won't do it and you don't want to do it or that, um, you know, you, you quit. I, I, and I think that there are a lot of people who have bailed on Christianity that do have the integrity to just say like, I just don't think it's true. I think that, um, what Jesus teaches is an untenable way of life. I don't want to deny myself. I don't think that that's best. You know, that I respect that a lot more than saying like, Oh, you know, I like this part, but not that part. Yeah. And I can't help it. I just can't help it. It happened to me. I'm, you know, like uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't reconcile these things. It's impossible. Um, I think that we all have to figure crap out. And within the Christian tradition, there's actually like a, what I might describe as something like a waiting room where you can even within the tradition enter into a space where you question things that are even fundamental to Christianity and not because of your cynical and hateful and mean spirited, but because, you know, you actually want to figure out what, why we believe the things that we believe. 
but you do it in the room. You do it in the house with other people. I did this um, podcast series for the the book itself, uh, the Death to Deconstruction podcast. This is like a little mini series where I talk to other people that have good reasons to not be Christians anymore, but are still Christians. Evan Wickham's one of them. John Mark's another one. And uh, the thing that I did not, I genuinely did not stage. I did not plan for. It's not an angle that I, you know, presented to them before each um, guest. Like, okay, make sure that we steer the conversation to this point. But naturally and organically, a hundred percent of all the conversations went to church. Essentially, the reason that I have been able to persist in my faith is community. Is that there is some level of accountability, um, and they even would argue this without arguing it. Meaning that they might not have said directly, like, "Oh, well, it's because I stayed in the family of faith even while I asked my questions." But they would describe a scenario where, like, well, I, I was being held accountable by other people who would invite me to ask those questions and wrestle with those questions, but who would continue to challenge me and say, like, yeah, but what about this? And mm-hmm. that doesn't make any sense, you know, and, and wouldn't let me do the thing where it's like, I go into my corner of Instagram where I know everyone already agrees with everything I'm going to say, <laughs> and I say what they're already saying into the echo chamber, and they pat me on the back for it, and no one... Ever, you know, it's like the thing I'm trying to teach my soon to be nine year old now, which is sometimes when I'm correcting him lately, he'll be like, I don't just stop talking about it. And I'm like, no, son, don't be a millennial. You have oh. to hear things you don't want to hear. Sometimes you have this to very familiar deal. to me. It's my nine year old. <laughs> it's like you have to deal with the fact that people are going to tell you stuff that you don't want to hear and that you're going to be corrected. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's just part of what it means to be a ma- ma- mature human being. Well, I so, mean, even, even as an eight-year-old, you have to be yeah. corrected. So I've got a quote of yours to read to you. And it, I'm going to read the quote, but then I think that leads to a question. Uh, you once said, this was on Twitter a co- few years ago, deconstruction is fine in community and under leadership if it's always and only a precursor to reconstruction in community and under leadership. I screenshotted that one because I thought it was good. Oh, wow. I don't remember saying that. Wow, that sounds great on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I don't to, you? I need to get back in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the the question that leads to, and, and I'm, I'm going to describe a point of view that I understand but don't identify with, which is that a lot of the deconstruction crowd, that's an oversimplification, but sure. their their response to that is, is going to be, well, I'm not going to have anything to do with the institution that traumatizes me and mistreats people and is is corrupt because there's a uh, there's a thread in kind of I don't know modernist thinking or or kind of public rhetoric right now that it that is very much you dissociate from things that are problematic you tear them down mm-hmm. and you build something better now the practicalities of that are a totally different <laughs> conversation but um, so what you obviously and the folks that you mentioned did stay in community. But what what is the response to somebody who says the community is what hurt me, or I don't know how to find that, or where is that? Well, it's twofold. I I would argue the the first dimension or my first response is that you are going to go and believe with other people, no matter what you do. There's Ooh, no escape shoot. from communal belief unless you become like an entirely isolated hermit in the world, <laughs> an agoraphobic isolated hermit that has no access to the internet. And I realize these people exist, but that's, that's honestly the extreme version and the only 
tenable version of escape from communal belief. If you, you know, vacate the church, if you decide this is the institution that harmed me or it, it's internally, it's inherently corrupt and therefore I will have nothing to do with it. You will leave that community of faith and join a new community of faith. Now that new community of faith that you join might not be as ancient as historic or as formal or as, um, regulated, but you're going to go into your little corner of Instagram and have everyone say the same stuff that you believe and go, yeah, and you're going to, or Twitter, we're going to retweet the same stuff that you, we as human beings are designed for connection. And this is not a uniquely Christian belief. This has been confirmed by decades of scientific and study and neuroscience. We are designed to connect with other people. And one of the easiest ways that we can do that is by a shared point of view, you know, at chemistry or you think this, I think this too. Mm-hmm. Everyone believes together. You're going to go believe with somebody else. So there, there's no getting around that. And that means that wherever you go to, to believe, you will bump up against human crappiness. That is the <laughs> inevitability of life in the world as a human being. Every single human being is inherently broken. This is the, the unique Christian worldview. But you don't have to be a Christian to observe that the world is screwed up and that people mm-hmm. suck. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't have a low view of humanity so low that I'm like, you know, John Calvin and uh, they, they're all just reprobate and, you know, uh, <laughs> eternally depraved and all that kind of stuff, utterly depraved. But I do have what I think is a consistent with my experience and world history low view of humanity and that I think that People in general, um, if given a choice between what's best for the human family and the world and a choice for what I want, even if it's at the expense of the human family and the world, they will, given enough time, choose the latter. They'll choose mm-hmm. what I want, regardless of what happens to other people and the world. And, you know, like that, again, is not a uniquely Christian perspective. Just look at the state of the world and, and mm-hmm. every country and every political system and every whatever and every religion. So you're going to go to a community to believe. And when you get there, people are going to suck and fail. <laughs> so there's yeah. no, there is no escape hatch from those two things. If what you really want is to get out of like institutionalized religion, you're, you're going back into one, one way mm-hmm. or another. You just might not describe it that way. And if you, what you really want to get out, get out of is corrupt systems and abusive power and you're going back into one. It's like the whole... Yeah. One of the most hilariously hypocritical things of the, uh, you know, the whole phenomenon of um, what has been kind of shorthanded as like anti-science or QAnon level crazy, you know, like conspiracy theories online that has for some reason really taken up with like millennial white moms and stuff on social media outlets is they're just like all oh, these corporations and the, these lies that we're being told by power and they're they're all i'm like well then get off your phone the first line of defense would be get off your phone the phone was sold to you by a gigantic corporation that we know for sure monitors what you do mm-hmm. and the social media app that you're using to say these things is the exact same thing and worse um but they're like yeah but i want to i want to be on my phone and i want to be on the so there's no way around it. You're going to believe in community and you're going to confront human corruption. And here's the other thing that nobody wants to hear. You're part of it. You mm-hmm. suck too. 
You are broken and you are selfish. I am broken and I am selfish. Not 100% of the time, of course, and human beings can and do great things, wonderful things. We also know that from human history and our own experience. But we do screw up. You screw up. The funny thing about the whole, oh, the church failed me and it, it was, you know, so corrupt and toxic is that, one, it's, it's not always untrue. All of us have stories that we can say, no, like I was dealt a bad hand. This was a bad experience that I had. And many people I do believe can say like through no fault of my own, I was mistreated by religious power or authority, pastors, Mm -hmm. you know, churches, institutions. But there's also, you know, this narrative of um, unbroken innocence when we, Hmm. when we talk about things like religious trauma and that we have absolutely no part in any wrongdoing from the point that we were hurt on into, you know, in perpetuity. But now I think that I have enough hindsight and maturity to look back at my experience in church and say, both things were actually true. I, I, from a young age was told things that weren't true and they were imposed on me by, you know, people in authority over my life in ways that did me detriment. That's not right. That's not a good thing. Um, it's a bad thing. And then at the same time, like I participated in like unhealthy uh, relationships and conversations. I was arrogant and narcissistic and selfish um, about the conversation around church, especially when I was most cynical about church. Um, I was closed minded. I critiqued things in which I had no stake and no participation. Here's another great uh, name dropping critical thing for you since I already made the Michael Gunger fans mad a little while ago (laughs) is that I remember, uh, and I'll give this guy credit at the end of the story, but I remember um, years and years ago uh, during one of, you know, infinite amount of outrageous things that have happened in American culture over the last 10 years or so. It, might, it was either a mass shooting or like an incident of police brutality or something that understandably and rightfully gets the whole world prickled. And, you know, everyone's just like, this is this should not be. Mm-hmm. And Dave Bazan, who's a musician that became kind of the soundtrack artist for the deconstruction movement and phenomenon (laughs) um, with his whole public breakup with God thing. And I'm a long, long, I I speak, I sound bitter because I'm a long time fan of Pedro the lion and Dave Mm -hmm. and still, and still like listen to his records when he puts them out. Um, But he, I remember got online and said something that was, it might still be really popular public critique of um, church culture and said this popular quip, which is, if you go, it was like on a Saturday night, if you go to church tomorrow morning and your pastor does not condemn, you know, whatever was, was going on, then you need to find a new church. And someone replied to him because I was like, well, that's a really strong thing to say. I don't know that I agree. don't know that I disagree. That's mm-hmm. just like, uh, you know, I opened the thread and someone had replied to him <clears throat> really graciously, non-confrontational, not, it sounded like somebody who was probably a fan, but disagreed with his whole, you know, it sounded like a nice Christian. And the nice Christian said, hey, dude, with respect, um, you don't you're not a part of church. So you don't you don't actually know what's going on in unique communities and what the needs of that community are. So it's not really fair for you to say, like, I don't participate in this thing whatsoever, but it needs to be doing this. (laughs) Um, And to Bazan's credit, he replied to that guy and said, that's fair. Like, uh, I don't I'm I'm not in on the conversation whatsoever. 
and then, you know, I think explained a little more about where he was coming from. So, you know, and the same thing happened to me in, um, one of my, I had a class with a professor when I was in grad school who was hyper reformed. I'm not, who was, um, takes a lot of theological positions that I don't take, but we had a, I think we had a great rapport. I really liked the guy. I think he liked me. We got along really good in a kind of a good natured argumentative way that entertained one another. Yeah. And he was at one point critiquing um, the theology of the late Rachel Held Evans. Hmm. And uh, I thought that it was going to be because, oh, he's hyper reformed and, you know, and his tradition uh, has or he was a a complementarian, which means that he didn't think that women should be um, pastors and teachers. So I thought it was going to be that whole thing. Oh, she's, you know, blah, blah, blah. She's liberal or whatever the, the critique would have been. And I, and again, like I did not agree with a lot of what Rachel Held Evans said um, either. I just thought that that would be his um, takedown on her. And I said, why, why do you say that? Because he said, I don't know why anyone would listen to what Rachel Held Evans has to say. And I said, why not? Why, what do you think? Why do you think that? And he said, because um, she doesn't go to church. Why would you go to someone who's not a part of the conversation for the takedown on church. Like if you want, you know, you know, like hmm. she's not participating in any meaningful way in any way at all. So what does she know about? She doesn't know anything about church. She shouldn't speak about things that she doesn't know about. Um, she can talk about her old experience, but that is not in any way indicative of all churches all the time throughout history. And I thought like, Oh yeah, I guess that that makes a lot of sense. So you're going to be part of church. You, you don't like that term. You're going to be part of communal faith and belief. There's no getting around it. And you're going to be part of people's brokenness. I think that if I'm being honest about, you know, um, the inevitability of screw ups and the inevitability of like churches and people's bad experiences or people's the inevitability of bad experiences at church, there's, there's a fine line or, or there's um, a both and that I would argue that is, I do think that there are times that it is advisable for a person to leave a certain community of faith. Uh, By that, I mean just a church. You know, you go to this church down the road and this, this, and this is going on. And, you know, you, and not because you're out, you know, uh, emotionally reacting and immature and, you know, oh, someone made me mad. I quit, which is what happens a lot of the time. Someone said something I don't like. I quit. But something is really corrupt and it, it, it is advisable to leave that church. Um, to go to a new church. You're, you're never going to find the church that's perfect. You're never going to find the church that's devoid of any, I'll even use the word corruption because people are corrupt, but you can find, and this is a genuine experience now that I've had in working for churches for almost a decade now and, you know, like sharing life with lots and lots of different churches from different traditions and different denominations. There are absolutely Many, many, many churches out there that are imperfect and have made mistakes to, at the highest levels of leadership, but are trying and are mm-hmm. repenting yeah. and are admitting like, oh, we didn't do this right, or are dealing with the problems that happen in their church and addressing them and trying to heal and trying to repent. And that's the best anyone can do. You know, mm-hmm. I think that what oftentimes, if I'm being uh, blunt, is that when I have conversations with people about quitting church... One out of the 10, maybe even one out of the hundred is the conversation that ends with me saying, look, you gave it a good shot. 
it sounds like this is just not a healthy place to be right now. You know, I don't know how you would reconcile it. Have you considered, let me help you find a, a different place and not in a like hasty, burn it down, run out of town kind of way, but just like, let's, let's talk about what it would be like to join a different community. And that can be a really painful, complicated process for people, even in a church that's hurtful because there's relationships there and history yeah. there. It's like a breakup, you know, mm-hmm. that's the one out of 10 or even maybe one out of a hundred nine out of 10 or 99 out of a hundred times it's oh, the, the pastor said this thing and it made me really mad. I, so I want to quit or I was in a small group, you know, and my friend did this thing. They betrayed me. I want to quit. Or, you know, they didn't talk about the thing that I wanted them to talk about. I quit. They, the pastor didn't invite me over for dinner every single night. I quit. You know, it's these, these are not to my estimation, <laughs> Uh, mature reasons to disconnect and disassociate from the mm-hmm. community of faith. These are, if I'm being frank, immature reasons that can be dealt with, you know, like in any system of relationships, um, you have to participate in a meaningful way and you have to participate in accountability and vulnerability and repentance. And, you know, I, you know, I'm a pastor at a church. Our church is very small, but it's still, for some reason doesn't change the fact that people often, you know, are upset by something I said or did, or, you know, they come to me and they're angry or I get an email that's ticked off or something like that. And a lot of them are like, Oh, I'm ticked off because this, this, and this. And it's like, Oh, you know, I can't help it. I'm human. So I'm like, Oh, great. Here we go. Now I got to deal with this thing. But a lot of times people come to me and, you know, there was a dude who was, uh, he was hurt and offended by something that I said in a sermon And the way he dealt with it was he came up to me and said, Hey, do you have time to have coffee with me sometime in the, you know, the next few weeks? I said, yes. Um, we met up and he said, look, when you said this, it hurt my feelings and and made me upset. Um, can you tell me why you did that or what you meant by that? He gave me the opportunity to (laughs) repent to him in accountability. He didn't like say like, look, I know blue, you know, like he was very forthright and said what he meant. And the two of us were able to, resolve and reconcile. I was able to apologize and say, you know what? That was careless. I didn't even think about it that way. Will you forgive me? And to then, you know, bring that to the rest of the church, even if none of them even noticed that I had said the thing, cause it was pretty unique. But I, and then that to me is the model of like, if, if this was how we approached a sense of being wronged by leadership from minor indiscretions, all the way up to major indiscretions, like the attempt to reconcile and to, and to hold one another accountable. Absolutely. But to deal with those things in, in the messiness of community rather than don't like it. I quit. You know, that's what, that's what my eight year old does. He says like, I don't like what you're hearing. Stop saying it. You know, it's just not a mature way to navigate relationships. So yes, if you're, if all the way back to this is the, the sentence answer to Taylor's original question, you're saying like, Oh, the, the institution of church itself is corrupt. Yes, all institutions involving human beings are corrupt to some extent. Um, there's no way around that. So if that's if that's the reason that you quit, you must quit everything that involves human <laughs> beings now to be consistent and have integrity with what you say you believe. Um, but if it's the case that, well, yes, it's broken, but we can find ways to navigate that brokenness in healthy, mature ways that that honor the community and continue to participate in a meaningful way it probably makes more sense to choose the latter. Mm-hmm. You know, it gets me thinking of is that you, in our first conversation, 
the the spiritual discipline of art appreciation, as you put it. You talked about it as a it is it is part of the process of spiritual formation to see the art that God caused to be and respond to it and to develop those that those muscles, as it were. And uh, as you were summing up what you just said just now, it got me thinking about the fact. Um, I guess I'll pose this in form of a question: How much of what of this? there's uh part of it is a fad <laughs> part of it is a movement i guess you would say it's a human thought thing how much of it is due to the american church machine being best at creating consumers rather than disciples oh man you for a, an accurate uh and you know uh really well-researched answer. You'd have to ask someone like Mark Sayers. <laughs> yeah, um, he would, he would know. My narrow pastoral experience would argue a lot. A mm. lot of it has to do with um, a bad presentation for what it means to belong to the community of faith. And I'm not saying is this of like, oh, I'm so, I've got, I've got a church and I got it right. We have gotten it wrong a million times. And our, you know, I just the other week was teaching and said like, I think all the stuff I'm saying is right. Otherwise I wouldn't say it, but I know that it's not all right. <laughs> so, hmm. you know, we, we as a family have to find a way to deal with that and to hold one another accountable, me and everyone else. So I'm not saying like, Oh, we've got it so right. And I honestly think if I'm being, um, gracious is not the word, but, uh, honest that a lot of it happened very good naturedly or with the best of intentions. There's church that I'm very, there's a form of church and a presentation of church with which I am very cynical mm. about which I'm very cynical. And if I'm being honest, judgmental, it's not healthy for me to, you know, sometimes people send me TikToks of yeah. like big yeah. famous churches and, um, and they're from the church. They're not like made to make fun of them, but they, we are making fun of them. You know, they'll send me a TikTok in a, in a group thread and be like, oh my God, look at this church. It's huge and celebrities go here and this is what they're doing. And it's, I'm just not mature enough at this point in my discipleship to see that and be like, well, you know, bless them. I, instead, I'm like, oh my God, are you freaking kidding me? It's like, it's like when I, yeah. my wife plays me Taylor Swift, I'm like, this makes me not want to be a musician. This is what people want to hear. I don't want to do it anymore. Um, <clears throat> she gleefully like, is, does that, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I, I think like, this is what people want from church. It makes me not, I don't want to do it anymore if this is what people expect. Yeah. yeah. But um, that's me and my cynicism. I think that honestly, the American evangelical tradition now now that word's a word that is not helpful because it's entirely political but going mm -hmm. back you know a few decades to the mainstream protestant expression of church in the united states um there has been these interesting waves uh, or of movements that have eventually had massive influential effects on the rest of the protestant tradition in america you know go back to like the 70s and the jesus movement on the west coast that mm -hmm. spawned the Calvary Chapel tradition, which is like a, um, if I'm being, you know, lazy shorthand critique of it was like high view of Bible, low view of like intellectualism and theology and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Lots of good things came from that. Lots of bad things came from that. Um, there was the whole, um, what did they used to call the proto deconstruction progressivism? It was the, uh, uh, 
emergent church. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was the emergent church movement in like the early Like meeting in bars world. and coffee shops and stuff. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Like, we, we go to the pub and we study the Bible. It terrified all the evangelicals. Oh, my God. Uh, which is funny because at the time, these people were probably closer to Christians than the modern deconstructionism, for yeah. all we know. But that was like, uh, you know, like got became uh, popularized with uh, the early work of like uh, Rob Bell when he was a Christian mm-hmm. and the, the writings of people like him. So books like Velvet Elvis were changing the game. Um, and I, w- I was right there. You know, I read Velvet Elvis when it was relatively new and was like, oh, my God, this is really fascinating. I've never heard anything like this or read anything like this. And then churches were growing a- out as expressions of that kind of, you know, like outside the box thinking. Blue Like Jazz by Donald Miller was another like, wow, the unconventional conversations about faith. And then a lot of young pastors came along, influenced by these cultural pop culture phenomenons, and were organizing the aesthetic expression of their church around those ideas, if that makes any sense. So for the first time, churches, um, and these were not like wacko churches, these were like really traditional um, congregations were having like low lighting during the gathering and a rock concert. Mm-hmm. Um, with like stage lights and stuff and people were logos like, and branding and websites brand, churches mm-hmm. were branding for the first time. And th- this is still like pre social media and everything. Um, and uh, honestly, again, I don't think that that's all bad. I think that they were taking some level of, um, creative responsibility for the way mm-hmm. that their church meets and expresses themselves. I, you know, like people critique our tiny church and say like, well, why do we do this and that? It seems like we're trying to generate an emotional atmosphere and i'm like we are what are you talking about? like that's 100 <laughs> percent what we're doing do you go to like uh any kind of like gathering with a, a a sense of communal um responsiveness that isn't catered to an emotional response hmm. like what kind of that's concerts do you go to or get together is a book even a book club people like burn incense or light a candle or turn the lights <laughs> you know what i mean like that's just yeah. what we do yeah. as people i don't understand this whole it has more integrity if it looks lame you know, um, <laughs> I would argue the opposite. Uh, so I, I think, you know, that, again, I'm not critiquing those things. Those things are fine, but they eventually became a, a kind of soul less, you know, and it became mm-hmm. less about like churches rediscovering the artistic aesthetic tradition of, I mean, like go into a cathedral and start telling them, Oh, this looks like you're trying to generate the stations of the cross. What is this trying to generate emotional response? Yes. You walk around the cathedral and experience through visuals, Mm -hmm. the, the crucifixion of Jesus that we've always had this high view of merging like aesthetics and artistic artistry. The tabernacle comes to mind. The tabernacle. God did it first. God was like, it has to look like this. And I want the pomegranates to be blue. And, and then there's got to be these weird creatures on the wall and only this guy can make it. That's not inherently bad. That's inherently good, I would argue. Yeah. Um, but it became kind of like art often does. It became a bit soulless, a bit corporate, and a bit um, contrived. And it, it was less about like taking aesthetic responsibility for your community and more about like, how can we brand this in an appealing way to get more people? And that eventually leads to um, how can we make church itself more accommodating uh, so that we get more people, butts in seats and and more money. And I'm not saying that every big church with branding is inherently corrupt. I worked at one for many, many years and still love and believe in them with all my heart. Um, would go and work there tomorrow if if I needed to. So it's not like 
I have an issue with that in and of itself. And I only work at the small church now because that's what I believe in. You know, it's not that. Um, but I think it, it becomes inevitably like anything, you know, the more that it spreads and the more accessible it becomes that these conversations start to happen where there's considerations for things you didn't consider before. Like maybe tomorrow, if my church became huge, we'd start actually saying, Oh, should we say that it might offend everybody and we'll lose everyone and we won't be a church anymore. So Mm. it's easy for me to say my church is small and we don't have those conversations, but the conversations we do have with other churches are hilarious to me because we have a guy on staff whose job is to like oversee all the small groups. We call them van city communities, but it's, you know, it's essentially a small group format. And so he works with the community leaders and works with the communities themselves and organizes all the infrastructure for all that stuff. And he inevitably meets with lots of other pastors in the city, uh, in our city and across the river in Portland about like, how do you guys do stuff? Can we borrow it? And vice versa. And the thing that he hears all the time is like, oh my God, you guys put people through that much to get them into communities. We would never do that. That's so, that's such a high ask. Our ask is that you attend a one Sunday afternoon class that explains how the communities work, that you go through a one week training where essentially you meet together as a community and the guy who works there comes with you to say like, now you do this and this and this and any questions. And then like they attend leader meetings every month and, and participate to that degree. And, um, he's like, what, how, like, this is the, we're not, it's not supposed to be a high ask. It's just supposed to be like oversight, some degree (laughs) of oversight. And they're like, Oh my gosh, if we told people they had to do all that, we would never have, you know? And I, I think that that is one reason that, you know, people in our church have told me from time to time, he's like, I just, they just feel like, Maybe the reason the church is not bigger is because the right away it's just like oh we believe in you know he died here you're gonna die to yourself and um, and if you participate here you need to be faithful it, it's it's meaningless to be half in half out we were looking for consistency not inconsistency um, and that's a caricature of us but it's a and it's an accurate caricature meaning it's part of the picture not the whole picture I'm like well that's what I'm came here to do I actually want to figure out how to follow Jesus with people who also want to follow Jesus. And yes, you know, anyone's welcome to come and go and we can't control that. And that's totally fine. But if you want to be in then be in, that's what we came. That's, that's what I'm here for. How are you supposed to follow Jesus with people who are like, eh, you know, like, and they're not here (laughs) half the time or that kind of thing. So I think all that to answer your question is that we have presented people with a, it's like the eight year old who says, stop talking. I don't want to talk about this anymore when they're being corrected. And we go, all right, you know, and then they eventually develop a worldview in which if Mm. I don't want to hear this, it should stop. And I think that is the worldview (laughs) of a great deal of, of young people today is that like, if I don't like this, then I expect it to stop. Not just for me, but for the world. And the outgrowth of that is things like outrage culture and cancel culture and it's not enough. You need, they need to be destroyed if they don't say and do the right things. You know, fundamentalism essentially just shifted from the right to the left. And instead of yeah. the conservative default position, now it's the progressive left position is of outrage, fundamentalism. The satanic panic just became the progressive panic. And now it's, you know, the moral police, the culture police, cultural wars are controlled on the left by like, no, you have to say this and follow our rule book or we will destroy you and silence you and censor you. And the idea that that's how the world works or should work, of course, 
people come into church and go like, Ooh, I didn't like that. It needs to stop. Not just I quit, but church needs to stop and we need to take it down. Um, and I think that time will tell that it is not only not a healthy perspective or worldview, it just isn't tenable because the Mm -hmm. world will not accommodate the worldview, that worldview long-term. It's the thing of like uh, thinking of it as a house, as we've been talking about it, is useful because, okay, the house doesn't work anymore. We don't want to live here. Let's tear it down. But nobody so far has a meaningful blueprint for what to build next. You'll get little pieces of, I think the living room should look like this, and the bedroom should definitely have this in it, and this is the size kitchen I want. But then if you put all those things together, it's like, well, this is some kind of weird hexagon, like, (laughs) you know, lump of clay thing. And it's not going to stand up when the wind starts blowing. And what you find is that when when there is no foundation, what you find, as though I know everything, but when there is no foundation and when there is no structure and when there is no cultivation of of space, because that's what you're talking about, like if, if you live in a house then real life cannot happen there because that thing that you've built is not designed to sustain it and to to feed it and to help it to thrive. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think that long-term, the deconstruction trend um, can't continue in any meaningful sense, not because, oh, you know, God's going to tear it down or something. It, it, on its own locomotion, it can't continue in any meaningful sense because it can't, um, erect real community around itself and it can't possibly sustain real community around itself because for real community, there has to be some kind of unified expression of belief and share it, There has to, every community has to have orthodoxy, you know, meaning mm. right belief. You believe these things, not these things for it to work. So it's this, this idea that you come to, the karate dojo, you know, in your local strip mall because you want to learn karate and you get there and the master there is like, I'm a black belt. I know karate. I will teach you karate. Do you want to learn karate? Yes. I want to learn karate. And then someone else walks in and goes, I kind of want to learn karate, jujitsu, but I also don't believe either thing is best. So I'm, but I call myself a ninja <laughs> and they, they, they will never have any meaningful share in that training because they can't possibly sign up for the same shared orthodoxy. They can't, you know, the teacher's like, I guess, but I've, I teach karate. That's what mm-hmm. I, I've come here to do. And the people, the other people here have come to learn karate. So you can say all these things, but you will never go and find a dojo that's like half karate, half jujitsu, but describes, identifies as ninja. You know By the mean? way, because you don't you don't have to practice anything to be yeah, a member. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> there can be there can be no practices. Because there is no orthodoxy. And so if there's no orthodoxy, there's no accountability. No one can say, what well, we don't believe that. So we're holding you to a standard of what we believe because you put it together. You made a patchwork of belief. And so everyone's allowed to believe all things, which inevitably becomes no thing. Yeah. And, uh, and so it can exist, I think, in, um, in online communities where it thrives and it can exist in sh- social circles that are outside of the church where it also can thrive for a season. But it's usually over a shared reaction. It's over a shared sense of we're against this. That's tribalism. That's not community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like uh, we, we, we know we, we all don't like the same thing. And it's the, the you know evangelical boogeyman that represents all the wrongdoing of 
Christianity in the world. And by the way, it's a hilariously narrow perspective of the Christian movement throughout history. Yes, it's true that the Christ- Christian movement has been responsible for awful things throughout history all over the world. But Christianity is so much bigger than America. Deconstructionism is really only happening amongst primarily, this is an overstatement, but primarily amongst affluent white millennial Americans. Um, it, it, but that's a teeny, teeny, tiny minority of the global Christian movement. You know, Based on really current statistics, most of the Christians in the world are elsewhere. They're in Africa or in Latin America and Oceania, you know, like I, I read stats recently that argued that the, the, the majority of Christians are in or elsewhere in the majority world. Um, the majority of them are in Africa. The majority of them are women and the median age is 19. Hmm. And so, you know, the thing that I've been saying since the book came out, as I'm having this conversation with people about the deconstruction movement, it's just like, is really a fringe movement in terms of global Christianity because the average Christian is not the white podcaster in California, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in their, in the suburbs, the average Christian is a teenage girl in Nigeria, apparently. Um, <clears throat> and they do not have the same issues with the Christian tradition that the white affluent American male Christian does um, because their understanding of it, experience of it is totally different. That's not to say like, oh, it's only corrupt here. It's not corrupt there. Again, people are everywhere. So there's problems everywhere, but it's just such a narrow perspective to be like, and, but that's, you know, that's what we do. We, we say this happened to me. Therefore it's indicative of everything everywhere all at once. And now I'm out of the whole thing instead of um, taking a more nuanced and wider understanding of the whole thing. So deconstruction can't possibly keep a community around itself um, if it's, if it amounts to a little more than tribalism, which is why I don't think it survives hmm. long term. It has to eventually end in decon- total deconversion because you can create an orthodoxy around atheism. Um, they, atheism has a clear orthodoxy yeah, and uh, or it's going to, um, transform into some other spiritual worldview that does have orthodoxy, you know, where they can say, all right, well, I guess I believe these things. And you, you know, we all believe with other people. You're going to find other people who do believe those things with some sense of shared belief. You're going to be like, okay, well maybe I can't do karate jujitsu and identify as a ninja forever because I've learned and experienced that it just makes no sense. Um, (laughs) But I can go learn the karate. I'll just go learn the karate. I, I think in my hope, um, my hopefulness is that there will be a mass migration back to historic Christianity as the tenability of deconstruction breaks down more over time. Um, that could be, you know, blind optimism on my part. I don't know, but I do not think that it can sustain itself on its own locomotion. Well, I, I have a, I have a further question on that, but Ryan, do you, do you have anything you want to throw in? Have we lost Ryan? Oh man, I thought that this whole time Ryan was just very still. It turns out, now that I'm looking at him, he looks like he's totally frozen. (laughs) Whoops. Let us know when you come back, buddy. (laughs) Um, Talking about kind of the next phase of what happens. So the subtitle of this book is Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. I don't know if we've talked about this before, but you you don't well, I know you have in, in public is you you don't take the audience into account necessarily when you're making the thing. 
is it should to a certain degree be an honest expression of what you're thinking and feeling and, and all that kind of thing when it comes to creating something. Now, of course, after the thing is done, you do think about, well, I hope I got to get this out there somehow and I hope people yeah. enjoy it or respond. Otherwise, to it you just wouldn't release it. So clearly exactly. You got to care to some extent. Yes. Hang on. <laughs> is he trying uh, to get back in? Yeah. Oh, there we go. Ryan, Ryan, Ryan. <laughs> you coming? Yeah. There he is. Ryan, 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 Ryan. Ryan. <laughs> Look, he's still in the position in which he was frozen. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I thought that he was still there. Oh, I don't know what happened. I was just like, wait, no. This is- what did you do? All right, listen to this Everything. incredible question Taylor's about to ask. Oh, no, no. <laughs> we actually wanted to know if you were thinking something. Because you were frozen so long, we're like, he, he quit. I was deep in thought. He deconstructed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. No, I did think, and I, I, I totally trying to get back in, forgot where we were. Um, I was thinking something, though. Uh, here's your chance. No, I, I, I guess part of the thing I was thinking, and this may be completely gone from where we were since I was out for, uh, you know, a few minutes there. But just, just the idea that, you know, y'all both said it in different ways as we were talking through things. I mean, Taylor, you mentioned the blueprint and what we want. And and Josh, you talked earlier just about dying to ourselves. And it, it seems like, you know, it's so simple to say, well, that would fix it if we'd quit looking for what we want, hmm. you know, and, and kind of the whole consumerism of I want this and that and give it to me and shift more to what it, what does God want from me? And what, what is that discipleship that, you know, molds that and... And I don't know if, if churches really know how to make disciples anymore. I mean, that sounds mm-hmm. like a huge criticism, and I don't don't mean it that way. But I mean, at what point have we forgotten how to to make disciples? And at what point is the congregation just trying to be there and hear what they want to hear, as opposed to doing their part in making disciples? And yeah, I'm I'm hopeful that that is. I think that's a fair critique, but I also have experienced that it's on um, the mend, especially mm-hmm. uh, with the rise of. Um, a new generation of writers and thinkers and people like uh, Mark Scandretti and um, their, uh, and even John Mark, you know, his, his whole thing mm-hmm. with the, the disciplines and formation. Yeah. Um, there seems to be a move back to, and I think that's why it, the, you know, John Mark's books have had such a huge reaction in the last few years is that the church is realizing that, Oh man, we've been missing something, and that mm. that happens throughout Christianity. It happens that the focus shifts, and, and we lose the plot on certain things. So we need prophetic voices to come along and be like, we need to recapture the Bible project. Comes to mind. The mm-hmm. Bible project is this is not a joke, not hyperbolic. A gift from God to the church. Like yeah. uh, I, I can think of few things, institutions, people. Um, that are more important for the Christian movement than the Bible project, honestly. Yeah. Uh, and, th- and, and you know, my wife and I joke about it all the time. We watch new Bible project videos and we have a bunch of friends who work there and uh, like, can you, can you imagine seeing something like this when we were teenagers? It would have like absolutely yeah. blown our minds yeah. that not only could there be something with such sophisticated um, biblical theology condensed down into straightforward language, conversational language, but with such aesthetic excellence, it's like usually you can have some of that, but not all of that. That's the yeah. Christian triangle. You can have it like <laughs> smart, but not comprehensible, or you can have it comprehensible, um, but not smart. 
And you can't have either two with artistic integrity. You, like, you, have to th- you can have artistic integrity with neither of the other two things. Yeah, yeah. The Bible Project, like slam dunk, all three things consistently on a regular basis um, to the point where I finish whole series on the Bible as a teacher that I feel like I put so much work into then watch one three-minute video and go like, oh, this is better. Yeah. This is better than my whole series that I did. So I think that now... Um, there are more and more resources for recapturing the vision of the early church, which I know is a thing that we romanticize all the time, but mm-hmm. um, I'm a pessimist by nature. And even I think that it's getting better all the time. Not that like, Oh, no. we've, you know, the evangelicalism as it was, will come back because that needs to die. That's the thing that was, I think like the, the whole orchard went bad and the trees need to just be uprooted. Mm. Um, but the Protestant Christian tradition in the West and in America, um, I think will recapture an imagination for discipleship, for things like spiritual formation, which got kind of taken out of Protestantism and put over here in other denominations and traditions where, um, you know, Catholicism still has a window for different types of mystic practices and desert father thought and spiritual formation, but not really in Protestantism anymore. Now all of that is coming back into um, mainstream Protestantism in a major way. So that's on the mend. We have things like the Bible project. I mean, how can you not have at least some optimism about where we're going? And the mm-hmm. Bible project has to be influencing a wave of new creative yeah. people, new teachers yeah. and thinkers and scholars who are going to be the ones who then, um, unlike my wife and I will say, Oh, when I was 12, yeah. I had the Bible project and I learned so much. And that's what set me on a journey with the Bible. Mm. I heard Tim Mackey recently. I was in a room with him where he said, um, someone asked him, like, what's the coolest story that's come out of the Bible Project and all its work? And he said, honestly, the best thing is that we have had people say to us that they did not know that the Bible was beautiful, and now it is to them. (laughs) And he's like, to me, that's like, you know, mission accomplished, job well done, in that you have people who are rediscovering a love for the Bible, not just the way the Bible I grew up with was, um, you know, I had a complicated relationship with it at best. I I (laughs) understood that it was good, you know, uh, and I understand it was good for me, but in the way that broccoli was good for me, I don't want to do it. Nobody (laughs) wants to do it, but we need to do it. It's like, you know, rigorous exercise. Yes, we know it's good and we know it's what you're supposed to do, but we don't want to do it. Nobody likes it. No. Um, it took me a while. And honestly, my journey through becoming an artist was the first thing that woke me up to an appreciation for the Bible. It's like the Bible has all the stuff that I like in a work of art. It's outrageous and offensive and confusing. And it has all these different like genre mashups and bizarre stuff. And um, that doesn't mean I love every single bit of it. I, I'm like anyone else. I'm still confused, still learning. And there are parts that I'm like, oh God, I wish this wasn't in here. <laughs> um, and I don't know what to do with it yet. So I'm, yeah. you know, like anyone. But now we have a we have more resources to help us to understand what it means to follow Jesus well, how to understand the scriptures well, which I think will be another feather in our cap in terms of when the locomotion of the, the steam engine of deconstruction eventually burns out and we realize like, oh, this isn't really anything. This was a reaction and you can't react forever or else mm-hmm. you just become an embittered, sad, closed off person. And they exist and they will continue to exist, but you don't want to be that. You have to go somewhere. And some people I think will deconvert completely if they haven't committed to that yet. And other people will um, come back into the family of faith and realize that 
it wasn't that the entire thing was corrupted. It was that they had a bad experience and they lacked the tools or resources or they were unwilling at the time to deal with it. Yeah. And that, that's where you were. That's, that's where you were headed when I cut out and I decided <laughs> to, to cancel you. Uh, I think that's where you're going. Like just the optimism about kind of this new, new thing that's probably coming. So that's, yeah. And, and I c- kind of had a, a summation question that we were starting to get to, but I wanted to wait till, till you came back. So the, the subtitle of this book is Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. And so how would you sum up, we were talking about the fact that when, you, when we make something, you're not thinking about the audience, or you shouldn't be, right. whether or not they're going to like it and how they're going to respond to it. But once you've made the thing, whether it's a book or a song or a movie or whatever, then you do start to think, well, how do I get this out there to people? I, I do hope they like it. How, how, how are they going to respond to it? So kind of taking that, that tagline, what, what is it that you're hoping in, in, in whatever small way, um, what is it that you're hoping happens as a result of this book being out there? I hope people um, return to faith in, in Jesus in the in the orthodox apostolic history and by that i don't mean to you know be like it has to be my ver-. what i mean is like not a christianity of their own design with no accountability and not a um patchwork jesus as uh, you know a buffet table spirituality that compromises the truth that has been held dear by christians around the world for thou- you know 2000 years at this point but the Christian movement, the way, the one that Jesus started, the one continued <clears throat> by the apostles in the early church and the church mothers and fathers down throughout history. And orthodoxy is like a roomy, you know, landscape. There's all sorts of traditions and expressions, denominations that all belong to the Christian movement. You know, I think that when they, and this is something I say in the book, I think when it works well, um, people can establish themselves in a tradition. I call them camps, you know, like in, mm-hmm. and think, I, you know, I want to be here. I think this is my home. Um, but they can, they can move. They can go and learn from other people and other traditions and come back to their camp with, with more insight and more maturity. When they don't work, the camps are like, you know, they have barbed wire around them and they're <laughs> like, no, everyone's wrong except us. And that's no. not healthy for anyone. You can belong to a tradition in a camp within the land, great landscape of orthodoxy and still be open to other, you know, I've been a Protestant Christian as long as I've been a Christian. I read from Catholic theologians uh, on a regular basis and quote them and teach from them. And I'm not Reformed at all, but I read Reformed authors and thinkers and learn from them. Um, so I'm not, I'm not scared of different perspectives. And that's what I'm, I'm hoping that there's a mass migration back to faith. And I'm hoping that this book can contribute to that in, in whatever way that God sees fit. Um, you know, I, I think that writing nonfiction this time around, since I, the only other thing I did in nonfiction was a band memoir many, many years ago. And I don't even remember what's in it. It's probably not very good. Uh, I do. I remember what's in it. <laughs> well, don't talk, don't, don't tell me. Just let me forget. Uh, There's a wonderful chapter about, uh, the sound guy. Oh yeah, that's true. I do remember that. They're the worst. They're the worst people. You you, you sum that chapter up by like, I know that the, that these people must be having conventions wherein they figure out the ways to be most unhelpful and how they're going to make yes. sure that no bands Just can hear the terrible, terrible, I'm terrible so people. and you you sum it up by saying, I'm so convinced this is happening. When you find out where it's happening, let me know. I want to be there. <laughs> Oh, it doesn't sound so, the book doesn't sound so bad. No, it's pretty and good. What I meant was that like, that to me was amateur nonfiction. I was just like, I don't know, maybe I'll try writing about the band. And I, I don't really read a ton of nonfiction. 
Um, I read a ton of fiction, so um, I was, you know, a guest writer <laughs> for a season. I don't really remember that well. This was like a sincere attempt at nonfiction. Yeah. And I read a ton of nonfiction to prepare myself for it, books that I thought might end up being similar like the book or the kind of book I wanted to write. I read a lot of memoirs. I read a lot of um, writing on deconstruction and tried to, you know, buy. and then in the end, the books that I kept on my desk while I was actually drafting were two novels that I would open and read to get the voice right, you know, so yeah, I'm still yeah. most inspired by fiction. But the thing about nonfiction is unlike fiction, unlike music um, for me, which are the other two things that I've dabbled in the most, um, there has to be at least a little um, awareness of the audience when you write hmm. because you're communicating information and ideas. Uh, and that was a weird place to be. Ordinarily, I communicate information and ideas, but it ma it doesn't matter to me how obscure they are, how clear they are, if they're comprehensible, if they're completely incomprehensible, um, how if it's abstract, if it's clear. Mm. Um, it's all about, you know, what I feel like doing in the moment, and it, it will or won't find an audience. That part is irrelevant to me. But this is intended for an audience, you know, and, yeah. and, you know, Taylor, like you said, you finish a project, if it's fiction or music. And at that point you have to think about the audience or else I wouldn't release stuff. I obviously want people to experience it because I release it and tell people and say, Oh, tell your friends, you know, but what I mean is that like, I don't go into it catering to the expectations of anyone. I just yeah. hope that when it's done, it manages to find someone who cares. But with nonfiction, you have to, um, not necessarily cater to the audience in a way that compromises the creativity, but you have to, you want people to understand what it is that you're saying, yeah. especially on a topic like this one. That was, so that was a weird um, experience for me. Um, and what I found in the end was that the outline that I'd written went largely unused or I had to revise it along the way. It's just, <clears throat> I kept finding that I was writing a book that was unconventional. I kept forcing fiction into it. Not in a way that I tell stories that I say are true and aren't true, but there's like a, a thread through the book that's fictional and deliberately so you'll see when you look at it and hmm. the, the nature of it kind of ping pongs back and forth between like memoir and uh, more discourse like teachy talk, but the braided back into my personal experience, which is not, I didn't make any of these things up. A lot of people do this kind of writing, um, but I hope that at the end of it, it's not like. You know, at for, like I told you guys earlier, I sat down at first and was like, I'm going to write an answer, an intellectual answer to intellectual problems and realize better books already exist that do that really well. So my thing is like, I've got a story. I'll tell it to you. I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not trying to convince you. It's not like a please, 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 please. I've got good answers to these problems. And my book is outlined around um, what I think are the five biggest issues that contribute to deconstruction. Um, which is biblical illiteracy. We've talked about that a lot already. The problem of evil is a huge thing. Um, a politicized faith. If you look at any survey on why people aren't Christian anymore, that comes up. Hypocrisy, which we've also talked about a lot, the, the inevitability of the crappiness of people. And then um, self-denial, which is mm. the, the core teaching of Jesus that didn't sell then and doesn't sell now. <laughs> so even, even if you can get past the first four, he's going to ask you to take up a cross and, and no one wants to do that. So it, yeah. it is outlined around like, oh, here are some like, you know, roadblocks to faith and how we can resolve them. But I think it ends up being more of um, 
one guy's story and one guy's observation and how he navigated those things. And I'm handing you a perspective if you want to consider it. And I hope that honestly, like I, and you know, I sent out a, a message to every leader at our church, everyone on staff and invited them to pray with me that this would contribute to some kind of revival of faith. And I don't mean like, Oh, it becomes a bestseller. I don't have, you know, that's, everyone says this, but I genuinely don't care about that kind of thing for more, for evidence of this, look at my whole career. So far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but I do hope that like, I, I want to hear stories of, you know, I deconstructed, I left and God used this thing, this little book with little stories in it. And, and I came back, I've, I followed Jesus mm-hmm. again. So if I'm being honest and sincere, I know that sounds like a, a cheesy pastoral answer, but that is, that was my ulterior motive the whole time. And I make it clear. Like, it's not a trick. That's, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. It's in the subtitle awesome. of the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, man, I think we could keep going. <laughs> There's always so much to say whenever we, we get to talk to you. And uh, I appreciate... Um, I appreciate that for so many years you you have been an open book in so many ways to so many people. And if nothing else, I think that that is potentially a gateway for folks who don't know who to talk to, where it's not safe, but where it's okay to think about these things and ask these questions without feeling like there's somebody who's trying to get them on their side. And yeah. that's... That's something that really from the very beginning, e- even if some of the art that you make sometimes is not for me, I know that's the thread that's underneath it. And that is something I have so appreciated for so long. And um, we appreciate you sharing more of that in the, in these conversations with us. And, and I mean, we, <laughs> we kind of feel the same way is like, this is so much of this is just about us making sense of things or trying to. And we push the record button in the hope that there's other people out there who just, who maybe it could give them uh, a, a, li- a little bit of, I mean, maybe there's insight, but if nothing else, that they're not alone in yeah. these questions. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I really appreciate about that, about you guys, um, the sincerity and the willingness to talk about the complicated stuff from a place of vulnerability and like we get it and we've been through these things. Um, but what, what honestly encourages me the most is that you guys do it from a position of faithfulness, from a perspective of it's really easy to, you know, the Christian movement is easy to critique church in America is really easy to critique, especially from the outside, but to, you know, step into the conversations from the inside as a person of faith and faithfulness <clears throat> and be like, yeah, these are real, these are real things. They are happening. <clears throat> so what do we do about it? What do we do mm-hmm. about it? And how do we maintain faithfulness? So thank you guys for doing that. Keep up the good to, work. To quote the apostle Peter, where else can we go? Where else can we freaking go? Freaking A, man. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, thanks for listening to episode 26 of the Unbetween podcast. We hope that these conversations are as beneficial for you as they are for us. And we would love to know that. So if you're not uh, following us already on the social things, go out and do that. We're on Twitter at Unbetween Pod. And you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching Unbetween Podcast. And when you do find us, let us know what you think. Let us know what's been helpful for you or even conversations that you would love for us to have in the future. 
By following us, you're also going to find out about all the new things that we're hoping to do in the coming year that we're not going to talk about yet. So I'll leave that there. Um, Yeah, that's all I got. We'll see you on the next one.